All right, we are in Colossians, so turn to Colossians chapter 1. And we're starting in verse 9, Colossians 1. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have transferred us from the domain of darkness. You've transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son. It's in Jesus that we have life in him alone. Thank you, Lord, that you are doing a great work among us. You're working in our midst. Thank you for your spirit who fills us that we might walk in your ways, Lord. We pray for our kids, each one of them, Lord, that you would save them at an early age. Be gracious, Lord, to save them. Let them see you for who you truly are, God, and respond in faith. We thank you, Lord, for the new floor that is coming along. We thank you for uh, the company and the workers that have been up here working um, long days and even some nights, God. Bless them um, and let us be a testimony and a witness to them. And God, let us hear from your word now. Let us truly hear and then put it into action for your glory. Amen. All right, so these six verses that are in Colossians that we're looking at, this week and probably for a few more weeks are really a single sentence. Now, some versions might actually break it up into a couple sentences, but it's really, in the Greek, one long sentence. And there's, there's three main parts. We've kind of been looking at one part, which is the beginning, where he begins a prayer. Now, this prayer that he's doing is what we would call an intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is when you're interceding on behalf of someone else. Okay, so he's praying for the Colossians. The first um, verses, starting in verse 3 through 8, is actually another prayer that we looked at previously where it's a thanksgiving prayer. So he's giving thanks for the Colossians. Now he's interceding and asking things um, for them and asking, asking the Lord to do certain things, which we'll look at. Um, a quick recap. Last week we looked at Gnosticism, in part, because that is really the main and primary error that Paul is addressing um, to the Colossian church. So we're going to do just a brief recap um, in case you weren't here. Last week was a fuller kind of in-depth look at it. So if you missed that, it would be helpful for you um, to go and look at it. But just a real uh, quick recap with Gnosticism. The key takeaway is this, is the Gnostics were focused on knowledge and specifically a hidden knowledge or a special knowledge. And if you wanted that hidden or special knowledge, you really had to come to the Gnostics. They had the corner on the truth, if you will. But their worldview, in a somewhat of a nutshell, is that there is a creator God, the, the God that, that the true Christians believe in, they would say that the creator God is a lesser God, and that if you go back far enough, there's like emanations of, of deities, they call them aeons, that uh, immense from this perfect being and one of the mistakes because there was a little like hiccup in the divine essence was this creator god 
And this creator God is, is who ended up creating the universe. But because there was a hiccup and it wasn't meant to be, the universe is not good. The universe is bad. Material is evil. Um, the flesh is no good. In this system, Jesus is the redeemer of those that are basically trapped in materiality. Not in like material things, but we're like trapped in our physical bodies. So he comes from the spiritual realm with a message of self-redemption. So there's really no focus on the cross. There's no focus on substitutionary atonement. There's no focus on Jesus' blood being shed. There's no focus on the resurrection. There's no focus on victory over death. The real problem when, it, when we talk about salvation, the real problem is ignorance. We have to be free from our, from our ignorance. So Jesus dispenses this knowledge to awaken those trapped in ignorance. And so our body, our, our physical body, the flesh, is a prison. And the spirit alone is good. So salvation comes by discovering the kingdom of God within the self. There's two branches of Gnosticism. Y'all remember which, which, which two ways you can go with Gnosticism? Yeah, one is hedonism. You just kind of pleasure since since the flesh is evil and it's already tainted. Well, you can't taint it anymore. Things can't get any worse. So just do whatever you please. You know, nothing's off limits. Um, that's hedonism. The other extreme is asceticism. It's like the opposite of hedonism. It's like denial, right? And that's really the one that Paul is primarily hitting in the book of Colossians. He talked about it in Colossians two, which we'll get to. So what happens is. The Gnostics come along, Christianity has come upon the scene, and God's doing a great work through the apostles, and the, the knowledge of God is spreading. The true good news of Jesus Christ is going about, and guess what? Error creeps in. Error will always try to keep, creep in, in part because of our own flesh, and we want to do our own things, in part because of the devil, and he wants to do his own thing and distort the gospel. So the Gnostics come along, they have this focus on knowledge, but again, it's not just any knowledge. It's a special knowledge or a hidden knowledge. And so they come along and say, in order to really have knowledge, you have to have this special hidden knowledge. And how do you get it? Well, you get the special knowledge through them. So there's this contrast that Paul is looking at here, and we'll pick it up in Colossians um, in verse 9, when he's talking about being filled with the knowledge of his will. He actually uses a, a slightly different word in the Greek, the normal word would be gnosis. That's where we get the word gnostic. It just means knowledge. But he puts a little preface or a prefix on the beginning of that word, epi. And that word epigenosis really has the idea of a knowledge focused primarily in this context on salvation. By the Son, the Father orchestrating it all. So it's this knowledge, not some secret or hidden knowledge, but a knowledge that is in, in really, I guess, ensconced in true knowledge of God and what he's done through his son, Jesus. Here's the thing. Whenever we talk about knowledge, sometimes people will talk about, oh, the scripture, it's so hard to understand. It's so hard to believe. It's so hard to not believe, but it's so hard to understand. There's, there's just certain things that just don't make sense. Well, here is what we would call maybe the perspicuity of scripture. The main things are the plain things. Yeah. Right? So that is why... And the plain things are the main things. That's why, you know, uh, a two-year-old, God can, can give uh, the gift of faith 
to someone very young, and they can understand the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, do they understand complex words and, and the, the fullness of the Trinity or something like that? No, and some of us don't even, right? <clears throat> so, the clear things that God wants to make super crystal clear are super crystal clear so that even a young child can understand it. Are there parts that are challenging and we kind of can scratch our heads at points? Yes. Are there parts that we really have to trust really uh, learned and wise men to help us kind of dig through some of it? Yep. But when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, it is plain and crystal clear such that any person can hear it and understand it. Amen. All right. So, um, does the Bible talk about some things that are, that are uh, hard to understand? Yeah, absolutely. Does the Bible even talk about mysteries? Well, actually, it does talk about mysteries. Here's the, the neat thing, though. When the Bible uses the word mystery, it, and that's where we get our English word, uh, we get our word mystery from the Greek word mysterion. It just whoop, comes straight over. It always refers to something hidden in the past that God has now revealed. And so it'll use that term, mysterion. And what we would probably just use, and theologians normally use the term, is, is this, uh, this phrase, progressive revelation. Did Adam and Eve know the entire and complete picture and story of God's plan? No. But did he give them a glimpse? Yes. Yeah, I'd say he gave them a pretty good glimpse, right? Yeah. So he gives the promise to them about um, he will crush his head, right? He will strike your heel, but you will crush his head. Talking about the promised one to come. I even think if you continue reading through Genesis 4 and the birth of their uh, first child, uh, Cain, after, after uh, Seth, Seth, Cain and Abel, um, Seth comes along, right? If you look at that, um, that whole thing, I believe, is them looking forward to a promised Messiah that was to come. They believed that God was going to deliver on his promise. They truly believed it. So on and on and on. They're the prophets. They're prophesying things. And some of those things, um, they were prophesying, but they didn't have the complete and full picture. Yet God was revealing things in his perfect time and plan. You take those prophecies. What happens? We see them fulfilled in Jesus. The fulfillment comes, right? So this idea of a progressive revelation. It's the unfolding plan of God. Revealed by God in his timing. So it's not this idea of this hidden knowledge given to us, select few people, and then that select few, they get to decide who gets the knowledge. No, it's God speaking to his people for centuries and centuries, even millennia, right? Mm -hmm. Unfolding his plan for everyone to see. For everyone to see. So look at Romans. Keep your uh, place in Colossians because we'll come back to it. But look in Romans just briefly and you'll see this. Romans 16. All right, Romans 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery. There's that word, the mystery. Now, when, again, just pause right there. When we think of mystery, we're usually thinking of something, I mean, it's a mystery, right? We don't know what's going on. Something has been hidden. It's not clear what's occurring. But again, Read on, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, and then look what it says in verse 26, but has now been disclosed. That's the idea. It's been revealed, not just to a select few, 
but to all. It has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings, has been made known to whom? All nations, right? All nations. Made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So God reveals the mystery. He reveals it. Why? So that all nations could come to the obedience of faith. All nations would have the opportunity to hear the gospel and respond in faith. So go back to Colossians. So we're going to see this word, mystery, occur a few times in Colossians. So we're going to look at them briefly. Um, Let's see. Let's start in Colossians 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Who's it revealed to? The saints, saints, right? Right? So that all the saints, all the saints, they get to know. Revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what's the mystery? It's Christ, that he came, right? That all along God was working this plan, and we can see, we can see it all the way back from Genesis. We can see it perfectly, crystal clear now, but all the way we can, we can trace that story, right? So we're going, in our life groups, we're going through the book Biblical Theology. What's the idea? Is that, there's the, that God has a plan from the very beginning. So when we're reading individual stories and individual verses, we have to put that in the context of the big plan. Right? That God was doing a work from the very beginning to redeem a people for his own. So here, the mystery, Christ, that he came to die for our sins, that his blood was shed so that redemption through Christ could be made available to those who would trust in him. It goes on. Look at Colossians 2, starting in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Okay? The revealed. So whenever you see that word mystery, it's really the idea of the the hidden thing revealed. Christ. Here he is. Turn over to Colossians 4. We'll see something similar. He starts in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. So he's asking for prayer, what? To declare the mystery of Christ. I mean, again, what's the mystery of Christ? Well, it's been revealed to the saints we just read, right? And that message is supposed to go to whom? All the nations, right? So what is he praying? What, I mean, really, what's he asking for prayer for? That he would be able to spread the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Right? He wants that to go forth. So <clears throat> he kind of takes this idea that the Gnostics have of this hidden and this special knowledge. And he, I mean, he, in a sense, he's kind of 
I mean, poking fun at him a little bit because he's like, you guys think there's a secret knowledge. Hey, guess what? The cat's out of the bag, right? <laughs> like, everybody knows what the secret is, and it's Jesus. You guys are way off the mark. The secret has already been made known. It's Jesus, right? So back in Colossians 1, if you look there, so he's praying for them. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking, verse 9, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. So this, this word may be filled. Now, we looked at it when we looked at Thessalonians. So whenever uh, you see that word may, he's really saying, and, and it's pretty obvious because he says he's asking, right? So he, this is a prayer. But the may also tips us, tips us off that this is a prayer that the Apostle Paul is praying for the Colossians. But notice, short grammar lesson, we did it before, we won't get into it um, too much this time. But notice um, the voice that this is in, asking that you may be filled. You may be filled, right? It's a passive voice, which means what? You're, that, that the subject doesn't do the action. The subject doesn't, you may be filled. So the question is, you may be filled by whom, right? And, and, and especially, um, so this is called the divine passive, especially when it's a prayer. I mean, it's pretty obvious who's going to do the filling, but sometimes it might not occur to us, but who's going to do it in the divine passive in this prayer? Really, you may be filled. I mean, the Apostle Paul just kind of assumes they, they can fill in the blanks. You may be filled by God himself, right? And so he's the one that's going to do the filling. And this use of the verb fill, Paul is going to, uh, is going to use this word fill or fullness or full a couple of times throughout um, Colossians. Because, again, he's refuting the Gnostic error that they needed something else, this secret or hidden knowledge. But he's going to say, look, this fullness really is found in Jesus. So he hits on it here. <clears throat> Depending on your version in verse 10, um, it talks about being fully pleasing to him. So in verse 9, you'd be filled with the knowledge. Verse 10, depending on your version, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And then if you look over um, at chapter 2, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. And then verse 10 of chapter 2, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So this theme of being full, he wants to ground it. Listen to me. He wants to ground it in none other than Jesus himself. Okay. Again, not this secret. We, we, we don't need this secret or hidden knowledge to have fulfillment or to have that last little piece of the puzzle. No. The fulfillment and the fullness comes in Jesus. So full knowledge can be found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you wanted to put this um, passive um, sentence into the, into the active, it would, be, it would be, we pray, God fills you. Right? We pray, God fills you. Which, which indicates something, right? If, if, God, if, if, if Paul is asking God to fill them, it indicates that they can be filled with more, right? More of what? Well, knowledge. I mean, that's what he says, right? You may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what's the idea? The idea is a deeper Knowledge. The idea is a clear knowledge. The idea is a complete understanding. Here's the thing. When you know God more, then you know his character more. Yeah. And you know his heart more. Yeah. And you know his will more. 
So again, not some secret or hidden will, but his revealed will. There's, you know, there's two aspects to God's will. There's that which we don't know. I mean, he's got his sovereign plan that he's working out. He's got his hidden will, but he also has a revealed will. It's revealed right here, right? So when you ask yourself, like, how would God have me to live? Well, we know from his revealed will how he would have us to live, right? And when we ask, what would God have me to do? Well, we know what God would have us to do. Now, a lot of times when we talk about knowledge, it's hard to talk about knowledge without talking about wisdom. And wisdom, people have different definitions. But when you look at um, Proverbs, even Psalms, I'd say the book of James, really a definition for wisdom would be the skill or art of godly living. The skill or art of godly living. A lot of times people are like, oh, I want to be wise, I want to be wise, I want to be wise. They're hoping for like some like special empowerment from God of knowledge. Well, sometimes people say wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. Okay. But, but think about the people that you go to, go to for counsel. Hopefully you go to people for counsel. And usually when you choose someone to go to for counsel, you go to the most like, spiritually immature person you can find. No. Well, why not? Well, you go to the most mature person you can find. <clears throat> and why are they mature? Because they know what to do in certain situations. Like, usually when you go for counsel, you're like, mm, I'm not sure... In this, but really, what are you asking those people for? Hey, in this, what you're asking is, in this particular situation, here's the circumstance, here's the story, how do I apply God's word to this situation? Amen. That's really what you're asking. So, <clears throat> this biblical theology, if you will, you're asking them to take their knowledge of God's word and then apply it to that situation. Well, what, what, what happens? Well, you're asking them, what does godly living look like in that situation? And then they see better than others. Why? Because of the knowledge, and they've been filled with knowledge. And then they're walking it out. Okay? They're walking it out in a Christ-like manner in that particular situation. So, you, that's, I mean, if you want to be wise, guess what? Continue to be filled with the knowledge of God. Continue to be filled, and then walk it out. Walk it out. Know the word. This is why, again, this whole concept of a biblical theology, there's systematic theology, historical theology, practical theology, but this idea of biblical theology, like how is God working? What is the big story? We need to know the word if we want to apply it in particular situations. We have to really know it. So, yes, when Paul's talking about like a knowledge here, and we're going to get into it a little bit later, like... We have the, the, the knowledge of Christ talking about those issues pertaining to salvation, right? But here he's saying we want to be full of truth, full of knowledge. We want to be full of truth. Well, guess what? Then we want to be full of Christ. We want to be full of life. Well, guess what? Be full of Christ. We want to be fulfilled. And then, but what do we end up doing? We want all these things about Jesus, but then when it comes to fulfillment, sometimes if we're not careful, we like change our definition and we start filling it with worldly things. But we need to be fulfilled by what God offers to us through his son, Jesus. The fullness of Christ. So that's why we see this fullness motif throughout the letter. Okay. Um, the Gnostics are saying you, you need more. 
You're missing something. No, this is God's work that he is doing. And here the point is this full knowledge, this uh, robust doctrinal understanding enables one to realize God's will in, in daily conduct. Okay? The more you know his word, the more you're prepared to live it out. The more you know how to live it out, the more you know how to apply it to your life. So let God fill you up. It's kind of like, here's the thing, when you're at a restaurant and the, and the waiter comes along to fill up your drink, right? And sometimes, um, <clears throat> sometimes like, especially maybe I don't drink tea much, but, but my wife does. So it's like you get the perfect mix with the sugar and everything. And then they come and fill it up and it just waters the whole thing down and you're starting over. Okay. <clears throat> so the waiter comes and if you're, if, if you're with Andrea and she's drinking her tea, she'll be like, no, no, I'm, I'm okay. Like don't water my tea down. I've got the perfect mix. Right? <laughs> so that I mean, but that's us. Like God comes along and He's offering to fill us up, right? Can we refuse? No, seriously. Like, can we refuse? We, I mean, we can. We can. And and when doesn't the, the waiter come along and fill up your cup? Well, when he sees that it's full, right? Right. He comes when it's empty, right? Hopefully. Hopefully, sometimes, yeah, some restaurants, I don't know, these days especially. <clears throat> but if it's full, does the waiter come by? Not usually, or he might glance from a distance and see it's full. Guess what? We have to be careful that the stuff that we're filling ourselves with is really the fullness of Christ. I mean, think about it. Like, think about it. Like, if the Lord's coming, he's like, man, there's so much junk in there, like, well... It's hard to, to fill an, an already full glass. Right? Yes. So sometimes it really begins with us, like getting rid of stuff in our lives that we need to get rid of. Yes. And repenting. And making sure that we are the empty vessel that the Lord can truly fill. Here's the thing. Knowledge puts requirements on us. It puts a requirement on us. Look at uh, Luke chapter 12. So this is a much larger, we're not going to read all the verses, a much larger passage where Jesus tells a parable. We'll start in verse 43 of Luke 12. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And then here's, here's, here's where I want to focus on these two verses. And that servant, who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. And then here's Jesus' application. He gives it to us right here. He explains it. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Like, if we are believers, if we're claiming to know Christ, if we're walking in his ways, if we're claiming to be one of his, like, to whom much is given, much is required. 
and, and, and if you're hearing my voice, like God has blessed you to live in a, in a country of abundance. And many people, not everyone, but many people in this country have heard the gospel one time, two times, three times, ten times, fifty times, right? I mean, that is a blessing. The opportunity to repent over and over and over. So one theologian said, knowledge of God's will always has ethical implications. Because it requires us to bring our daily conduct and thinking into line with it. And guess what? We don't like that. Sometimes we'd, we'd much rather be ignorant. We'd much rather almost like have a, a Gnostic view of things. I'm just going to walk in ignorance and then, and then I'll just claim ignorance. Right? <clears throat> well, what does James say in chapter 4? So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Again, to whom much is given, much is required. And listen to me. Knowledge that excludes Christ, knowledge that views him as subordinate or questions his deity, is completely and entirely false and heretical. It's totally and entirely counterfeit. Okay? The knowledge that we have, it has to bow down before the Lord Jesus and acknowledge his supremacy. Yet, if you go to the vast majority of institutes of higher learning, I mean, Christ is not exalted, right? Now, ironically, they'll even have some Latin phrase about Christ and knowledge or something like that. <clears throat> the only reason they haven't chiseled it off is they don't really have much knowledge when it comes to Latin, apparently. <clears throat> but here's the thing. like, If you're in college, you need to realize that you're being taught with an imperfect knowledge. And it leaves out the key ingredient. I mean, this even includes many Christian colleges, like where the only thing Christian is like the religious studies department, where the one faculty member is the only believer on campus teaching. The same is true for K-12 public schools. The same is true for some K-12 private schools. You're being taught with an imperfect knowledge that leaves out the key ingredient, which is Jesus himself. He's the foundation for knowledge. Okay, like try making an omelet without the eggs. Make a hamburger without the meat. Kind of hard to do. I mean, think about it. Like, try learning psychology with not knowing about God's view of the soul. You're going to end up into problems. You're going to end up uh, misleading people. Try learning about biology and medicine with not, without knowing about God's view of the body. You're going to end up exactly where our society is today. With all the trash that it has. And try learning about the sciences without knowing, like, the one who created the universe and everything in it. Who ordered it perfectly from beginning to end, from top to bottom. You're building a house without a foundation. And you're putting, it's like putting a diving board over two inches of water. Okay? It just doesn't make sense, right? A submarine without a, with a, with, with a screen door entrance, right? I mean, it's foolish. It's foolish. So realize that, like, as you learn, a godless institution will not fear God. But as we see in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So Paul is saying that whatever the Gnostics are selling, guess what? You don't need it. And whatever the world is selling, guess what? You don't need it. You already have what you need. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And he's enough. And you don't need anything else other than Jesus. So the goal of knowledge... Back in Colossians, <clears throat> we see it right here in Colossians. 
Starting in verse 10. What's the point of being filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You're being filled with that knowledge so that you can walk it out. So that you can glorify the Lord. So it's not to take you to a higher intellectual level. It's not to change. It, it, it's, it is to change your thoughts and actions to be more conformed to Christ. Listen, effective Bible study, effective Bible study is always practical. It's always practical. Like you're looking for something else right now. No, that's it. Period. Effective Bible study is always practical. Like it will transform from here into here. And it will be seen in actions. So, you know, one of the men in our Bible study, I appreciate it because he's always like, let's make this practical. Let's make this practical. You got to take the theoretical and you got to and you got to take the practical. But the theoretical has to lead to practical. We can have all the theory and the knowledge in the world up here. But it has to work its way out into the real world where we're actually living it. So what's the goal of being filled with knowledge? It's not given to us to, to puff us up. I mean, there are great works outside the Bible, of gifted men writing down what they see in the scriptures. I mean, they, I mean, just amazing stuff out there. Amazing stuff. But God gifted those men. Why? I mean, to, to benefit us, to bless us, not to just give us some, some spiritual knowledge, not to puff us up, to inflate our ego, to swell our pride. I mean, but that's what happens sometimes, right? I mean, right? Yes, yes. I mean, so we go to college and, and we feel enlightened. You know, we get our associate's degree and we feel like, oh, maybe we're uh, a step above everyone. We get our bachelor's and, and we really have it figured out. I mean, if you think that, you definitely don't have it figured out. So the goal of being filled with knowledge is, is what we just read in verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I mean, as we're learning... If you're in school, as you're learning, like the goal ultimately is to glorify the Lord. The goal ultimately is to live a life pleasing to him. Okay? Some of your classes might not help you that much accomplish that. So get the, the kernels of truth you can out of those. If you're a teacher, you should aim to make sure that that's what occurs in your classes. Right? That you're equipping people. With not just like a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge. You're helping them see this universe and this world through the creator's eyes. <clears throat> listen, knowledge is good. And when he's talking about knowledge here, and this could, if you're not careful, and you just listen to my last two weeks. <clears throat> when Paul's talking about, and he actually talks about it quite a bit through the New Testament. This knowledge is the idea of, of the gospel. Okay. Like you, you, you not only just have this head knowledge, but it's the knowledge that he would say applies to people that are already saved. Like you already know Jesus. You've already come to a place of saving faith. So you have that knowledge. Don't walk away and think, uh, I mean, because if it was only about knowledge, then we'd simply just have to, you know, like, how much do you know? Let's pass the test, right? I mean, let's just hand out the papers. And if you have the proper knowledge, then you get into heaven. And if you, again, we're kind of back to Gnosticism if you take that route. It's back to the knowledge. No, I mean, we need something else. You have to have the faith. That's like the groundwork, right? <clears throat> but faith does include knowing. True? Like, you have to know certain facts, but guess what? Then the faith is where it turns into a trust. You are believing those things. 
You're trusting Jesus as your Savior. It's not just an intellectual, oh, there was this guy 2,000 years ago who, who lived, I mean, he was a nice guy, and he said some wise things, and then they crucified him. It's not just knowing facts. It's more than that. It's not just intellectual. It's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's when that knowledge transforms you. What God has done for you in Jesus, like, turns your world Upside down. It was like I said last week, you know, the Wizard of Oz, when it goes from the black and white to the color. Like, yeah. everything looks completely different. And those that got saved later in life, like, you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> like, it was like you put on, it was like you had a horrible prescription, all right? And you finally put on the right prescription, and you could see things clearly for the first time ever. It's beautiful. Very, very beautiful. Here's what, here's what Calvin wrote. John Calvin, by the way. <laughs> Not that cartoon strip. <clears throat> Calvin wrote, Faith rests not on ignorance, but on knowledge. And this is indeed knowledge not only of God, but of the divine will. So here's the thing. Like, we want to know and know more and no more and no more, not just for knowledge's sake. Like the thirst for knowledge and seeking after it, it can become a substitute, if we're not careful, of seeking after God. Like we can desire, we can desire the degrees, or we can desire to say, I read X number of books this year, or I know the Greek language. So like all those things can easily become substitutes for knowing God himself. That is the danger. Again, there's like Gnostic traps everywhere. Some of the most learned men in this word that I know from years past aren't even saved. Like they literally went to Harvard and got like a PhD in the Bible and they don't even believe it. But they definitely know it or claim to or seem to. So we have to be careful that the pursuit of knowledge of like knowing doesn't become a pursuit uh, and, and drag us away from pursuing Christ. Really, what I'm putting before you is that if we're talking about a biblical knowledge and, and God filling us up with that, that is us pursuing Christ. That is us getting to know him better. We're communing with him, right? We're in fellowship with him. We're coming into a deeper understanding of who he is and what he does. Look at Philippians. And we'll probably close with this. <clears throat> Philippians 1. Okay, here's what he says. Verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer. Oh, okay. This is what he's praying, right? It makes it crystal clear to us. And it is my prayer, what? That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So he, they have a love. They're believers. He's writing to the Philippians. But he wants their knowledge to do what? Abound, right? What does he want it to abound in? Love. <clears throat> the knowledge. Right? It's all right. We forgive you. It's not a test, right? We're not here for the test. <clears throat> knowledge and all discernment. The prayer is that they increase in love, right? But it's with knowledge and all discernment. Now, like, so we are like, oh, I want to love. I mean, hopefully you're like that. Like, I want to love. I want to love my neighbor, right? 
I want to love, but I mean, that's a pretty generic thing to say. I want to love my neighbor. Because then the question is, well, what does it look like to love my neighbor? True? Yeah. Well, guess what? I mean, the world definitely has a definition of what it looks like to love your neighbor. And that's like, don't talk about anything controversial and don't talk about religion and politics. Some families even have that like as a rule, like with their extended family members. But here's the thing. Like, what does is, what is biblical love look like? Right? Because that's what he's praying. I want the love to abound. So even the love that we have, our love can increase. All right? And I know some of you all, so it definitely can increase. Trust me. I'm just tell you. But seriously, like, I mean, that's what Paul's praying for them. Like, we can pray. You're always, like, pretty, you're safe praying prayers in the New Testament for other people. So you can pray that for your spouse, for your children, for your church, for your pastor, that their love would abound more and more. But what, what, is, he, what is his point? Like, knowledge and all discernment, what's the knowledge? It's that stuff that Christ is filling us up with, right? The knowledge of his will. What's the discernment? Knowing how to walk it out. So, you know, your neighbor comes across the street and, and starts talking to you about his transgender kid. Guess what? You're going to need some wisdom in how to work that out and how to walk it out and how to love your neighbor, right? And you can think of ways where you could totally, you know, mess up that entire situation, right? And ways where you could walk it out, applying the knowledge of God that he's given us. Walking in the wisdom. So again, if you're an unbeliever here, or if you're not sure, like, don't misunderstand me and be like, well, Pastor Mike said I, I have to get knowledge to get saved. Well, you, you do have to get knowledge. <clears throat> but it's the knowledge of what Christ has done for you. On the cross 2,000 years ago. Laying down his life, shedding his blood, so that you would have the opportunity to repent. You'd have the opportunity to come back to the Father and be reconciled with him. You have a broken relationship with God, and guess what? The Bible says you're his enemy. You're his enemy. If you're not a believer, the Bible says you're his enemy. I'm not saying that. Well, I am saying that. But I'm saying that because the Bible says that. You're his enemy. And guess what? He has terms of peace, and it's completely surrender to him. Okay? You can't change the terms or write up a different contract that's come to him, right? Surrender completely. Bow down and worship him. Acknowledge that what he has done for you through his son is exactly what you need. That is life. That is life. So the basic foundational knowledge, like when we talk about this idea of what God has done, right? Like when he's talking to believers, it's this knowledge that we have right here in the scriptures available to us. Knowing He's the Savior. Knowing the Father. Think about that. It, it still blows my mind. It still blows my mind, honestly, that the creator of this universe wants to know me. Yeah. Now, he already knows. I mean, he's all-knowing. Okay, I get that. But, like, and he wants me to know him. Yeah. It still blows my mind that he would come down, send his son... So that my relationship, I could have a relationship. Yeah. I could actually have a relationship with the creator of this universe. That's like, it blows my mind. It's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. A pure, beautiful picture of love. God has done an amazing work for us through his son Jesus. If you don't know him, I encourage you today. Like, you have everything I said. You've got the knowledge. If you want it, it's right before you to take it. You have to trust 
in Jesus. All the knowledge in the world won't get you saved. Trusting in Christ gives you salvation just like that. So let today be the day. If you're a believer, like this should be your prayer for 2023. Fill me more, Lord. Fill me more. And then the question is, and we'll look at it in in the coming weeks, but then the question is, okay, like we can't just pray things and then not put ourselves in a place for that prayer to, you know, for God to like answer that prayer. Like we're like, fill me, fill me. And then we go home and watch trash. That's really not going to work. Fill me, fill me, but I haven't read your word in six months, okay? Like, that's not going to work. So we're praying for the Lord to fill us. We're praying for the Lord to fill other people. Well, guess what? He's given us some pretty clear answers here just in Colossians alone on how to do that, all right? So my encouragement is as we, as we begin 2023, like, yeah, all of Christ, that's our motto, all of Christ for all of life. That's our motto for this year, all of Christ for all of life. So how can we make sure that is true in our lives as we're walking out the world? Let's pray.